Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on a move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, September 14, means it's episode number 95. Well, just ahead, Crocs bets on a post-pandemic boom on what some might say are ridiculous-looking shoes. And Oracle sees renewed growth as it moves from on-premise to the cloud. And can a giant silver miner avoid a $535 million tax bill in Mexico? We'll explore First Majestic with Gainesville Coins Everett Millman. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the drill down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including, might be news, Isaac, Player FM, now carrying all of the drill down podcasts. That and many others will let you subscribe and click follow us. That way you can catch every single show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain, Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and a Move, and we've got Isaac Webster, our executive producer, with the three most important business developments of the day. Uh, Corey, let's start with incomes. American incomes fell last year, Census Bureau figures show. That's despite increased government aid tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. Median household income in the U.S. was roughly $67,500 in 2020. That's down almost 3% from the prior year when it hit an inflation-adjusted historic high. Now, the last time median household income fell significantly like this was in 2011 in the aftermath of the last recession. The poverty rate in 2020 was 11.4%. That's an increase of one percentage point from 2019 and the first increase after five consecutive years of declines. Now, all this translated to 37.2 million people, American people in poverty, and that's an increase of 3.3 million people from 2019. Think of how much worse that would have been without all the stimulus. Yeah, that's the argument. That's the argument. Now, number two, let's get to inflation. Inflation eased in August, though prices stayed high. Consumer price, The consumer price index that came out today rose 5.3% from a year before as supplies and labor continue to drive up prices. Yeah, and I think the what's interesting is if you dig a little bit deeper in the inflation numbers, what you see is the biggest changes in inflation in the last year really have been, you know, again, excluding energy, um, but the biggest changes, which is why excluding it because it's so volatile, uh, the big, biggest fundamental change has been the price of cars, used cars and new cars. Um, still, you know, used cars actually came off in the most recent month, fell down a little bit in terms of uh, their, their price changes from the previous month, but new cars saw an increase. So some of that inflation is still holding. And finally, I want to get to Apple, and I don't want to get to his product event announcement they're having today. An Israeli cybersecurity firm called NSO Group has been exploiting a significant Apple software vulnerability since February. It silently infected iPhone messaging iMessage, according to the research group that discovered the issue. And of course, Apple has now uh, released an update to fix this um, this vulnerability. So yeah, if you have, yes, yeah, so if Pegasus. you haven't. 
If you have an Apple phone or computer, make sure you are up to date on your software. Yeah, this was a, this Pegasus software was able to get inside of Apple devices with a what they call a zero click remote exploit, which is kind of the uh, the dream scenario for those who want to spy on stuff uh, affecting iPhones, iPads, Apple Watches, Macs. Um, uh, kind of amazing that this is really was kind of the holy grail, and uh, but Apple onto it pretty quickly and issuing an update that'll shut that down. Well, pretty quickly, sure, but it's been going on since February, so. Yay, all of right, us. But I, it's been since February. They found out about it on Tuesday. They got to fix out today. That's true. Wouldn't be nice if they found out about it in February, though. Yeah. Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Let's look at Open Door Technologies. Open Door Technologies, that trades under Open, O-P-E-N. Shares fell today and they've struggled this year, but they have gained 30% over the last 12 months. What's new with Open Technologies? So uh, Open Door. Uh, interesting company in that they they go out and they buy real estate uh, really quickly. They let uh, homeowners just kind of take a video of the home, post it to Open Door, and Open Door offers a price real quick, does the whole transaction themselves, gets in and out of the deal, and then sells the house within three months or so. Um, it's a very interesting business. It's allegedly protected from market swings by the algorithms that they're using to try to make these deals happen fast and figure out the actual value is of these houses. Stock was down a bunch today, as you mentioned. Um, uh, you know, it, they announced a secondary offering where one of the insiders was getting out selling 28 million shares. You got to dig in a little bit to figure out which insider that was. In fact, it was a SoftBank Vision Fund. Uh, it was a Cayman Islands uh, entity that was funded by the SoftBank Vision Fund. So they're dumping a ton of these shares. Um, and uh, in that deal, you saw a sell-off in the stock. But I just thought it was an interesting time to, to look at this business. Um, these guys really think that by using lots of data, they can get uh, have an understanding of what a, the market cost really is, and they can look at the sort of um, uh, not efficient method by which people um, are selling their houses, the emotional reasons they're selling their houses, the circumstances of which they got to sell right now, and that Open Door can s- step in, put the money up to buy a house real quickly based on where the house is and what they can see from a quick video of the house, and then get out in a few months at a profit. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I listened to the CFO on the most recent conference call just talking about how she maintains that Open Door is just going to be better at this than anybody else because they're just structurally sound at doing things like selling into these into these big markets and understanding that the, the economics in a given area uh, gives them an advantage uh, at Open Door. Here's CFO Kerry Wheeler. We are structurally better at selling in the market. Uh, we are operating as a principal, not an agent, not a single home seller. That means we're making decisions um, that are all economically based. They're informed by substantial amounts of data, and we're doing that against a diversified scale portfolio. Very different from how any individual home seller or agent is going to make those same decisions. And we're managing resale relative to the environment we're in, and we're balancing all the time how we maximize return on our portfolio at the same time, we manage risk and our balance sheet slash inventory balance. It's an interesting model, Isaac. I don't know. Have you you've you've sold a home or or so in your life, right? Yes. Your place back in New York, you sold a few years ago. Um, yeah, about uh, and, five years and, ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of been that long. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting because people, you know, sell their houses because of a life change, not because they're trying to take advantage of some kind of economic situation or just the time of year in a market. People move. People get divorced. People get married. People have kids. 
Mm-hmm. That's when they change houses. It's not because they're usually trying to maximize economic cycle and the best ways to get in and out of a house. This company is trying to do uh, the opposite. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very interesting model. But, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm always hearing about people trying to take advantage of the market like this. But still, you're, I feel like those kind of those people always are not selling their home that they live in, but maybe a secondary home or just a, uh, an investment property. With these guys seeing so many houses coming in and out of their inventory, right. it's not like they're sitting on all the houses and having to dump them all at the same moment. Right. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting model. We'll, we'll see how it works over time. Obviously they're exposed to some big swings in the real estate market, but there's an argument that says that the real estate market really doesn't swing that quickly. And if we're talking about a 13 week period in which they own these houses, they're probably not too exposed uh, to that kind of change. Famous last words. Corey, what is your next drill down? It's a little company called Oracle. Oracle. Oracle trades under ORCL, as many of our listeners may already know. Shares did fall today, but they have gained 45% in a year. What's new with Oracle? Uh, You know, a lot is new with Oracle and a lot isn't new with Oracle. I just thought it was interesting. I, I don't, uh, I don't look at the company in great depth like I used to have to when I covered this company so much uh, in right. an earlier lifetime. But, uh, you know, when they announce earnings, there's sort of sort of so much nitpicking about what's happening. I think you kind of lose the the forest for the trees here. They announced a quarter this early this morning. Uh, revenues up 4% year over year to $9.7 billion in the quarter. Um, their cloud business up 6%. Um, their on-premise biz- licenses dropped 8%. Um, so, you know, a kind of quarter where things just kind of steadily grew, but over time, what we've seen from these guys, they really have succeeded at moving from on-premise largely to the cloud. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, you know, once again, our favorite drinking game, we've got a couple on this show, but uh, the digital transformation phrase, Ooh, it was interesting yes. to listen to Safra Katz, the CEO of the company, um, who's been CEO, uh, solo CEO now for about three years, I think, um, they're really growing, you know, steadily. And they have been for quarter after quarter after quarter under her leadership. And she really says it's all about this kind of digital transformation, getting their customers using things like their enterprise resource planning software called Fusion and getting that kind of helping do you companies. Get cold, do you get cold chills every time you say digital transformation? Because I certainly do. You you feel it? You yeah, feel just it feel, it's a wave of cold chills. Every time we mention digital transformation. Ooh, it's special. Ooh, special. Oh, yeah. Feels they good. were talking about the Met Ball all night. <laughs> it's huge. Some of them but, were wearing a digital transformation, I think. Uh, indeed. Um, yeah. So in, at Oracle, right? So two big things is it's moving well beyond databases, moving mm-hmm. into human resources software, uh, HCM, they call it, um, and their human capital management software. It's been very human successful. Human capital. Well evolved from what was once PeopleSoft, which they acquired many years ago. And their enterprise resource planning software called Fusion that manages how companies do things and in which order they do things and how they're putting their their assets to work. Those transformations, uh, CEO Safra Katz said, that companies took before COVID really helped pay off during COVID and, of course, accelerated uh, during the pandemic, uh, something that Safra Katz says was incredibly obvious. I think that one of the things has become incredibly obvious during this pandemic is that Companies that have closer digital relationships with their customers, their employees, and their suppliers are doing much better 
than those that don't. And the work from home and all the data that um, capabilities, whether it's mobile or otherwise, once you had implemented, your ability to adapt to changing business situations is so much better if you've moved to the cloud. And also capabilities that you may need can be supplied by a vendor like ourselves, where, for example, as we've discussed, we rolled out health and safety to our HCM customers so they, they could better work with their uh, employees and monitor and advise them regarding COVID. And um, there's no question that digital transformation is the top goal of companies, and those companies that had been delaying or moving slowly have brand new urgency on it. And of course, because we are ranked, and I think it's our third year in a row in the top right-hand quadrant on Gartner, really with no one even close to us, we are the number one choice of um, for uh, you know, move, moving to Fusion ERP and other back office applications. So for us, uh, I have to say that there's just incredible, incredible momentum and commitment from our from prospects and customers, um, and for companies who have been on premise either with our products or historically uh, with SAP, where they just can't continue like they did. So that's a lot from Safra Katz, but uh, I just think it's it's true. You're seeing it in the numbers that there really has been a transformation of their business. Growth is accelerating again. Uh, Larry Ellison talked on the conference call as well as CEO, the, the, sorry, the founder of the company, who was uh, the chief technical officer and chairman. Um, uh, he talked about how, you know, the, really the, the move away from on-premise was hard, but they've mostly done that now that they really think they are a cloud company. And uh, you can see the numbers, you can see the acceleration, the growth of the numbers. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at that maker of really ugly shoes, Crocs. You think it's pejorative? <sighs> did, you, did you hear my audible sigh? Let me do that I, again. I did. I think we all heard that. Because <sighs> that's the only way you can hear something is when it's audible. It's uh, very frustrating to hear you describe the company that way. Crocs is a beloved shoemaker. We are. I love proud wearing my Crocs in the Johnson household. My daughter, yeah, we all have Crocs over camp, here, and they were perfect for her as a, as a swimmer, as a water polo player. They're just they're just right for her. They still look ridiculous. That is a matter of opinion. Yes, That's a matter that is of opinion. My opinion. Uh, Crocs trades under C R O X, uh, and they shares rose today, and they've gained two hundred forty one percent in a year. So obviously, some people like Crocs. A lot of people like Crocs and Crocs yeah. is a lot of people are about to like Crocs. The company is doing about $2.2 billion in sales this year. They announced it in investor day today. They're going to go from about $2.2 billion in sales this year to $5 billion in 2026. Now, if they were actually pulled that off, it remains to be seen, but they're predicting $5 billion in sales by 2026. How? Digital transformation. Ooh, I just got those cool chills. Those yes. cool chills again. Yes. Um, they, they, so, you know, during an investor day, I've rarely seen but, and people leave an investor day and not say, boy, those guys really got it together. That company's really doing well. Did, investor day is almost always a day when the stock's going to go up a little bit because mm -hmm. people walk out of there thinking. It's a the cheerleading event. Yeah. 
if they're good at it, and these guys were good at it, and that's why yeah. the stock was up so much today. But I, I, you know, their their notion is that, uh, and I think this is an interesting lesson for any company selling anything, which is that your customers don't experience your product uh, in the singular place where they might encounter the product. That they might look at it online, they might see it for sale at a certain uh, store in person, and they might buy it yet, yet another place online. And so their digital strategy is kind of taking into into account. Um, exactly the kind of things Saffir Catch is talking about with Oracle with so many of their customers. I don't know if Crocs is an Oracle customer or not, but this notion that by having, uh, by seeing the world digitally, they can actually connect with both suppliers and customers and customers across all different mediums and different places they might research and eventually buy the shoes, uh, those really ugly sandals that you like. Beautifully comfortable shoes. That my daughter likes so much. In any and case, here is Crocs's chief digital officer, Adam Michaels. Our customers don't shop in any one of these channels alone. And we believe they each play a unique role in the consumer journey, whether that's through product discovery, research, or ultimately purchase. Crocs.com will continue to be the best representation of our brand, where you'll find the broadest assortment, great brand content, and the most unique and exclusive products like collaborations. E-tailers and marketplaces help us reach consumers we don't serve through Crocs.com and often offer a value proposition we can't. And in many markets like China, these channels represent the vast majority of current digital sales and projected future growth. Our goal is to create experiences that are as compelling and as brand-centric as possible on these platforms. So, I, again, clever strategy. I think it's going to basically double sales over the course of the next four years. That's a lot of sales. I mean, that yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of sales. It's a lot of Crocs. And I got to say, as a Crocs fan, wearer of Crocs uh -huh. Uh -huh. fan. So your bias is out here too. Uh, my bias is out there. But that's however, my caveat is, do I wear Crocs outside the house? No. I wear them around the house. And I have one pair of Crocs that I bought maybe 10 years ago and they still are great. So I'm not, I don't want to replace them. So I don't, how are, I mean, the idea that the sales are going to be that big, I mean, I feel like that is a heavy lift possibly. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. someone like me of Dutch descent ought to be glad people are wearing clogs of some kind. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Our guest, Gainesville Coins, Elbert Millman, one of our favorites. He talks yeah. about, we're going to have this really interesting conversation here about Oh, the largest silver miner in Mexico is trying to get out of a $500 million tax bill. We'll talk about that and more uh, when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And the drill down is brought to you by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates who meet your must-have requirements. Don't just hope for the perfect candidate. Indeed's hiring tools will help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, you can choose 135 skill tests to make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined and one and a half times more hires than even internal referrals. 
So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's right, a $75 job credit at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's Indeed.com slash Drill Down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we've got Gainesville Coins Everett Millman to talk about first majestic silver Everett, uh, this with the stock ticker AG, this is not an agriculture company. But for those of you that haven't looked at the periodic table in a minute, AG, of course, means silver. And silver means first majestic silver. Um, an interesting uh, Canadian gold miner traded in the U.S. with operations in Mexico. That's right. Uh, they are headquartered in Vancouver, but the majority outside of one mine they have in northern Nevada the majority of their operations are in Mexico, which is a very good thing if you are a silver miner because Mexico is far and away the world's largest silver right, A quarter of all the world's silver country. comes from Mexico. Um, and, and by my calculation, about $6 billion in street uh, trading last year. Although production's been coming down the last three years. Why is that? Not a lot, but you know, from like 198 uh, million ounces to 170 some million ounces. Right. Um, there has been some uh, changeover in which mines are active. So uh, First Majestic is very tightly focused on its core assets. It has four very large mines in Mexico and three more that are basically in expansion right now. So they're offline. They're not producing any silver as they make improvements and expand uh, the mining project. But coming along with that is that they have improved their efficiency and there is some interesting technology they've been investing in that I think makes First really? Majestic very interesting. Yes. So um, this is going to sound like something oh, out like of that. science fiction, I know. But they have. <laughs> yes. And I like that as an as an investor. I want to know that um, a company is not only committed to their core competency, but that they're also expanding into the future. And that aligns very well with how First Majestic kind of presents itself as a um, as a major backer of the usefulness of silver into the 21st century economy. So getting to that technology, there is a new equipment that they've installed at one of their mines um, in, uh, called Santa Elena. And it's an HIG milling equipment, which stands for high intensity grinding. And essentially what this does is it can pulverize the ore body to such a small size that it increases their ability to recover silver from the ore, which is um, not only kind of a high tech thing, but it also fits in with being more energy efficient, cost, uh, cost efficient and environmentally friendly. Yes, indeed. Um, it actually makes it so that there's less wasted like whatever the whatever the slag or whatever they call it whatever is left over tailings from after you've uh, drilled and you there may be a fine very fine pieces of uh, amounts of silver and gold in there and they wouldn't have otherwise have gotten it out but now maybe they can find a way to get it out right exactly so it's twofold that not only are they able to use less energy and be more efficient in the silver they recover but it does indeed as you point out reduce the amount of tailings and all that sludge that is a byproduct of the mining process. It's interesting. Now, how does it work? So it pulverizes with high intensity, which is basically what you're always doing with ore when you're processing it, but does it to such an extent that the little pieces, the little particles you're talking about can get as small as five microns wow. across. 
So to give you some perspective on that, like I said, this is going to sound like science fiction. That's about the size of one of our red blood cells, and it's fully one-eighth the size of a particle of dust. So we're talking very microscopic, um, but essentially that means that more silver can be recovered per each body of ore because a lot of those tiny particles are getting lost and thrown away with some of the existing technology. That, that's interesting because that, that I, I can't imagine what the equipment looks like, but, you know, uh, I've been strange. I've been reading about vacuums lately. And, and when I, you know, the, te- the technologies, the changing technologies behind vacuums um, uh, get down to that sort of micron level or, or the 20 micron level and sort of that's kind of a big cutoff in terms of what can get into the air and what can't get into the air, these must be sort of sealed operations uh, that look very different than what we've seen in mining operations in the past. Oh, absolutely. Um, it. I'm not sure that it involves vacuum technology, but it, I've seen some photographs of the sites and they do look like something you'd see in a lab at MIT or like the Large Hadron Collider. It is very impressive. And we uh, First Majestic has already seen some results from that where um, the average grade of the silver that they're extracting from the ore, so basically how many grams of silver can they extract per ton of rock, um, and in many cases these are very hard rocks that would otherwise be difficult to process, um, that amount of silver has doubled over the past three years. So they're already getting more efficiency out of their, uh, out of their ore processing. Does that mean that uh, there's value in tailings from old mines that didn't used to seem to have value? That is an excellent point because Thank you. it does. That's my job. That's my job. <laughs> it, it does, Corey. Um, they're, the tailings a lot of times basically sit in a dam. They collect somewhere right. until they are safely disposed. And so, or um, not. Or, or not, or not, un- <laughs> unfortunately, but um, First Majestic has also talked about and projected that they are going to reprocess a lot of those tailings and see if they can recover some scraps of silver and indeed gold. Um, and the projections are that they could produce another 1.5 million ounces, uh, silver equivalent ounces from their existing tailings just at one site. With gold, uh, sorry, with, with silver trading at what, 24.75, 25, we'll call it 25 bucks Per ounce, that's that's a lot. Yes, it is. Um, and another, you brought up, you know, just the price of silver. Obviously, that's good for First Majestic. And I also like that at their largest silver producing site, the San Dimas mine, um, where they produce thirteen to fourteen million ounces per year. That also has their lowest cost per ounce of silver. So it means that they are reaping the best profit margins from the largest volume producing site that they own. So I like that as an investor. Yeah. And there, and then last time you joined us, you educated us on the, the all in sustaining cost metric, which is essentially the, in oil and gas, I call it the lifting cost, right? Which is the cost of getting the stuff out of the ground, everything all in, what are all of your costs to keep pulling the stuff out of the ground? And in the case of these guys in their last annual report, they said it was uh, $13.92, which means if silver can be $14 or above, it'll be profitable to continue mining. Absolutely. And going hand in hand with that, you know, the margin between their all in sustaining costs and the price of silver is nice. But with the better energy efficiency they're seeing with the high intensity grinding and the fact that uh, their ener- how they're producing the power at their mines has become much more energy efficient of late. Um, they've converted over a lot of their diesel fuel and using the local power grid in Mexico to liquefied natural gas as their primary agent and hydroelectric power. 
So in both cases, they, again, are aligning with this environmental environmental sustainability that would seem to inform um, their pitch for why silver is going to be so useful as well. And, and silver, unlike gold, has tremendous use cases in industrial products. And, and, and as the economy does well, silver is used at least a lot more than something like gold, which is purely just a store of value and a speculative instrument. That I know is there's true. the argument from the gold bugs that there's other uses for gold or that jewelry in India is an annual, you know, consumption, but whatever. I'm going to, I'll put that aside and say that silver has a lot more functionality than gold. I would have to agree with that. And of course, the CEO and president of First Majestic, Keith Newmeyer, he is what we would call a silver bug. He is quite an advocate for all those uses. But when you really break it down, um, just a a quick laundry list, the fact that silver is used in the photovoltaic cells of solar panels, um, the fact that a great deal of silver is required for electric automobiles, it's used heavily in the medical field. A lot of these growing um, green spaces do require silver. So I think there is a compelling pitch to be made there. And First Majestic is well positioned to do that because they're one of the very few primary silver miners in the industry. So uh, the standard uh, for most companies, most miners that produce silver is that they acquire that silver as a secondary byproduct of mining for other metals such as lead or zinc. Um, First Majestic is one of the few where more than 50% of their revenue comes directly from mining for the metal silver. So and, I think they're in a good position to make that case. And they also pull out not a small amount of gold out of the ground. That is true as well. Um, close to 40% of their revenue comes from gold mining. So that is a, a, a nice backup to have. And in fact, um, they often express how much gold they expect to produce from each of their mines in terms of silver equivalent ounces. So it's just a quick sleight of hand based off of, okay, what's the ratio of the price of gold to price of silver? So we can kind of denominate everything in ounces of silver and and have a base for talking yeah, about Yeah, that's it. bizarre. It's like, you know, they, they, they do that in oil and gas again. I mentioned oil and gas again, where they talk about barrel equivalents for gas, which is weird, <laughs> but that's just what, what happens in that industry. Now, but, but I've never seen anyone talk about a silver equivalent when they're talking about gold. Um, you have, you know, you mentioned the, the silver bug and the CEO. You've also got one of the biggest speculators on, um, on minerals uh, out of Canada, now a big part of this company, in Eric Sprott, the Canadian billionaire who now owns, I guess, about 11% of the company's stock fully diluted if the warrants get priced in, which would require the stock to go up to about 13% of the company. What does that mean functionally? Like, we've got a guy like Eric Sprott who's who's no small character uh, so deeply involved in this company. Right. I think operationally, um, there's probably not a lot of moving parts going on. I don't yeah. think Sprott is involved in the day to day. But as you say, he is perhaps the biggest name in the precious metals mining industry. He's sort of the Warren Buffett of that sector. Um, so the fact that he has taken such a big stake uh, that they have that capital backing, I think it sends a message to other investors that, Sprott is usually a very good indicator for which companies do we think are healthy. Um, he does his due diligence. He is renowned for being a, a great student doing his homework about the companies he invests in. So um, Eric Sprott's involvement is just one of those indicators that I would say is flashing green for First Majestic. Well, I mean, to say someone is the Eric, is, is, the, is the Warren Buffett of precious metals is kind of like saying someone is the, I don't know, the, 
Los Angeles Dodger of the San Francisco Giants. I mean, <laughs> Buffett very, very specifically said that investing in gold is silly and doesn't make any sense because it's a non-productive asset. So I will put that comparison aside as I plug my San Francisco Giants. I think I've got a shot here. We've got a big shot. But uh, you, another, you know, you mentioned Mexico is a good place to mine for silver. And I guess if the goal is getting silver, it is. But these guys have a major beef with the government of Mexico going on. Um where the president of Mexico has come out explicitly and and castigated uh, First Majestic Silver for not paying their taxes, uh, has taken them to court or tried to take them to court for not paying their taxes. And there's a big dispute going on where First Majestic is saying they owe taxes on something like $7 million in gains, and the government of Mexico says it's closer to $250 million, which is a big difference. Yes, it's a pretty big gap. So uh, that, and and I mention this because it's, it's you know, it, means, it makes a lot, means a big difference to the value of this company and probably what they do going forward. I mean, if they were to have to pay $250 million in taxes, it would wipe out all of their cash, for example. Correct. Right. And um, there are some potential drawbacks that I think have led many analysts to being slightly bearish on First Majestic, as you brought up with the tax problem with the Mexican government that does uh, essentially draw back to back taxes that they inherited from their subsidiary that it was doing um, business in Mexico between 2010 and 2014. Um, they yeah. Which, uh, let, me, let me see. I'm paraphrasing. You can then you can tell me what a moron I am. Sure. Um, so it seems like they acquired a company that had a really nice tax deal and was losing money, and they inherited it. They bought the company, and they the company uh, the first majestic silver claims to have run it by the Mexican government and said, "Here's what we're doing. Here's why they don't owe any taxes. This company is losing hundreds of millions of dollars." And so that they effectively had so many losses that when they had gains later, that they would have essentially netted out to about nothing. The Mexican government says, no, 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 no. You should have been selling silver at higher prices than you actually sold them for. Therefore, um, we are charging you taxes based on what you should have been taking in, not what you claim you were taking in. I got that right. Yes, yes. Um, And that is the sticking point as under the previous agreement, um, the silver was being sold at a heavily discounted price plus a 1% annual increase as part of a streaming agreement with another silver miner, Wheat and Precious Metals. So, so yeah, what is a streaming agreement? I read that and I didn't really know what that meant. Yes. So this is a byproduct of what I mentioned earlier, where most silver mining companies are not primary silver miners. Um, a stream, all a streaming agreement is, is that one silver company will come in and buy up a certain amount of future production from another mine um, without taking like a joint ownership or any sort of stake in that actual mine. They're just buying some of its future production um, to create another stream, as it were, of silver ounces flowing onto their balance sheet, essentially. And in this case, they locked in a price. Correct. And the price was like six bucks an ounce. Yes, far below like the per- silver price. It was six bucks an ounce. <laughs> right. And there was this, you know, 1% annual increase uh, that was built into the agreement. But essentially, um, there is a dispute here where the government wants to get their hands on a fairer amount of the production, the, the being able to tax more of the production than at that lower $6 price. And the company that was getting that six, I would imagine they weren't very... Once the price of silver rises a lot higher, they're not inclined to make a lot of silver. But I guess if it's a if it's a byproduct of what you're mining for, otherwise you're you're gonna all the silver is gonna come out of the ground anyway. Correct, and it makes some sense to kind of lock in 
um, some metal production in the same way that this original agreement benefited um, the subsidiary company, Primero Mining, that was later acquired uh, by First Majestic. It benefited them from having tax certainty, which we know is a big deal. So um, the fact that this is going to the courts and has not been resolved is probably the largest drag on the bull case for First Majestic. Well, and the, and the going again, I don't I sort of don't care about the stocks, but I do care a lot about this interesting company and how the business works. And it, it does seem that one of the interesting things here is there are two venues, or at least at some point there were two venues. There were the Mexican courts, and then there was a NAFTA court, which would seem like a more logical venue for a Canadian company mining in Mexico. I agree. And it's even interesting that um, the update to NAFTA, the USMCA, um, didn't make any big changes that would have implications for this particular case, except that it would seem to me that um, that a NAFTA-style court would be the more appropriate venue when you're dealing with not just international investment and taxation disputes, but literally both being uh, on the continent in North America where the agreement is in effect. Well, uh, such an interesting company. And, and let me ask you just finally, what do you expect in terms of the time frame for the resolution of this case, whether they got to pay $250 million, whether they got to pay taxes on $250 million, or whether they've got to pay $6 million in taxes? Right. Um, I would expect, and maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, that it would be resolved in the next year or so. Because mm -hmm. as you said, that $250 million price tag, that represents all of their free cash flow, which um, First Majestic has made it a habit of plowing that money right back into um, cap capital expenditure capital expenditures, excuse me, um, their CapEx spending and R&D. So as an investor, I would love to see that money continuing to be uh, in reinvested back into the company rather than having to sit frozen in this sort of tax dispute. Yeah, interesting. First Majestic Silver is indeed interesting. So are you, Everett Millman, and you know so much about this stuff. Gainesville Coins is lucky to have you. We are as well here on the Drill Down Podcast. Coming up next, the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot Look, the production for this company is just massive. But what is the silver equivalent ounces produced last year by First Majestic? We'll have that big number when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And check out the drill down on the Audible app. Carry it with you anywhere you are. Listen to it on your Sonos, wherever you listen to your favorite uh, audio that's not just books, but also podcasts. Just uh, go to that Audible app and pull up the Drill Down podcast. You can follow us and catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. We are back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, we mentioned that First Majestic Silver make uh, find some gold. I said they make gold. They find gold. In fact, they found just a little more than 100,000 ounces, 100,081 ounces in 2020. They also found 11,598,000, no, 11,598,380 ounces of silver. So the total there of silver equivalent ounces produced is 20,379,010 that's a lot of heavy metal, Isaac. Wow, so not very much, right? Just very inexpensive, small, small, small fry, right? 
Uh, no. <laughs> That's amazing. I would love to see all that in one location. Uh, it's probably not as pretty as you imagine because the tailings and the slag. How do you know dam, my imagination is pretty? I, I just assume because okay. you are. Oh, so sweet. I mean, in a very, you know, masculine way, your prettiness. I gave you permission to say that. Speaking of going down a dirty road, we're not going to do that. We're here at the Drill Down Podcast, and we do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is, in fact, our executive editor. No, what's his title? Editor extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. I a promotion or demotion right there. Either well, way, the Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.